You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it is great to see you this morning. If you want to go ahead and grab a Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 5, that's where we're going to be today. So if you want to grab a Bible, it would really serve you to have that out and open and uh, where you can read it there on your lap. And so uh, if you'll do that, that'd be great. And while you're turning there, uh, let me just give a quick thanks to uh, Kevin Hill for preaching last week. If you were here, um, if you were like me, you were very blessed last week. Um, talked about how the good news of Jesus intersects with suffering. And, uh, and he is a man who has walked down that road in a lot of ways and uh, speaks from great experience there. So uh, thanks to Kevin for doing the hard work of that last week. And, you know, as we start 2015, um, just thinking last night and, uh, you know, just considering that we are starting a new year, it just made me think about our last year and uh, really about just the story of our church family thus far. And I, I just want you to know, just in thinking about that last night, that I am so proud to be and so and I just feel such a privilege of being one of your pastors. And so I want you to know that, that we're just so thankful for you. We consider it a real joy to be able to serve you and to be able to walk beside you. And uh, it is, uh, you know, I think I speak for all the pastors and your staff here at Stonegate, that it is one of the greatest privileges of our life to be able to do this with you. So we're very thankful for you. Um, okay, so we are to the last sermon in a set of sermons we have called Gospel Doctrine and Gospel Culture. So we're to the end of this road. This is going to be the last, last uh, you know, Sunday of this, last sermon in this. And before I say anything else, I want to say thanks to Ray Ortland. Uh, his little book, the little green one that we recommended at the first of the series, uh, uh, The Gospel, has been such a formative thing for me over the last year, reading that. Um, Ray has been such a help in all of this. And so I want to say thanks for him. Just to recommend that book to you one more time if you haven't gotten that. It's out on the resource table. I think it would be such a fruitful, helpful thing for you um, in, in your walk with God and God in you, all of that. I think it would be, serve you so well to, to grab that and read that this year. But he has been so helpful. But this has been the core conviction behind this set of sermons, is that gospel doctrine really is meant to create a gospel culture. That's, that's the overarching kind of umbrella this set of sermons fits under. That gospel doctrine is meant to do something. That gospel doctrine is meant to create a very particular culture. That the doctrine of grace, divine grace that comes on a human heart, is meant to do something. It's meant to create a culture of grace where human beings are extending it horizontally to one another. Like the, the good news of Jesus goes like this. That in Christ you have been treated so much better than you deserve. Amen? That's your story if you're in Jesus. And, and that is meant to do something, to create something, namely a culture where people are treating one another so much better than we all deserve. It's meant to create that sort of a culture. Now embedded into this set of sermons, though, is this warning that it is so possible, even likely, that over time a church will embrace the gospel doctrine. Even love and consider precious the doctrine, all the while not having the culture. Now just heed that warning with me. That is very likely that our church family, and if our church family gets there, it means that you and I have gotten there personally. It's very likely that you and I will be a sort of people who embrace and love the doctrine, but who do not embrace the culture that it's meant to produce. And, and we need to, to get our minds wrapped around. This is why we started in Galatians 2, where Paul confronts his brother Peter. In this very confrontational moment, he comes to him and, and he confronts him in the middle of, of this moment happening. Peter embracing the doctrine, but not the culture. Peter has the doctrine, but he's not holding the culture. And, and the reason Paul considered that such a vital moment is that Paul knows this. Gospel, you know, the, the right doctrine plus the wrong culture. When you have these two things, Right doctrine, wrong culture. We embrace the doctrine, but we don't embrace the culture. Right doctrine plus wrong culture equals a denial of the good news of Jesus. That's why it's so important. By God's grace, we want to grow as a church family. We want to grow up into both having both the doctrine and the culture. See, a gospel-centered church, here's the test, the litmus test of a gospel-centered church. It's our doctrine on paper and our culture in practice. It's both of those two things. Now, don't we all as a church family want to have both of those? By God's grace, we want to grow up to where we have both doctrine on paper, culture in practice. 
So over the last couple of months, we have been taking just a sliver of gospel doctrine and considering what sort of culture should it produce. Now, this morning, I want to finish by going to, to Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes, and I want us to consider one more time what a gospel culture looks like. What, what a gospel culture looks like. What, what does it look like to see a church family where a gospel culture is alive and vibrant? What does that look like? Matthew 5 is a great place to see it. So we're going to start back actually in Matthew 4. And if, if you have the ESV over verse 12 of Matthew 4, you'll see this little heading in the ESV. It'll say something like, Jesus begins his ministry. Do you see that? Right above uh, Matthew 4.12. This is the start of Jesus' ministry. Like he has just gone above ground in public. So for the first time, he is saying, people out there, we've got a new thing that has dawned. He is announcing who he is. Ministry has begun. Then you get down to verse 17. Here is the first words of his public ministry. First words, Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach. So he's just started his ministry and he's just starting to preach. Here is the summary statement of what he is preaching. Here's the first words out of his mouth. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So if you want to summarize the message of Jesus' sermon, it's this. He came announcing he is a new king. The king is here. And with this new king, there is the announcement and good news of a new kingdom. A new kind of people. A new community. This is what he's announcing. I'm the king and I'm here. And with me comes a new kingdom, a brand new sort of people, a brand new sort of community. And then he shows us the way into this kingdom, the way into this new community. The first word in his sermon, repent. That repentance is the way in. It's the way we enter into the, the kingdom of God, this new community that God is building. So he's announcing this new kingdom. He shows us how to get into the kingdom. It's through repentance. It's through turning from, from our old ways of thinking, our old ways of operating, our old ways of seeing, and throwing our life upon Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, and now seeing and thinking and operating like Jesus sees, thinks, and operates. This is repentance, turning from sin, hurling your life upon Jesus. He says, this is the way into the kingdom. Now, the question is, what would you expect Jesus to say next? Here's the kingdom. The king's here. Here's the way into the kingdom. Here's what I'm expecting Jesus to do next. For him to, to lay out the doctrine of the kingdom. For him to lay down, here's the kingdom. Now here's the doctrine that, that forms and fashions and is all around this kingdom, that builds this kingdom. But that's not what he does. You get to verse, or chapter 5, verse 1, kind of 1 through 12. Rather than laying out all the doctrine of the kingdom, the next thing Jesus does is to show us what the kingdom of God will look like in action. He gives us a description of, this is what it looks like to be in the kingdom of God. This is what life with God looks like. This is what vibrant, authentic Christianity looks like in action. This is the form of it. This is the culture of it. The next thing Jesus does after giving us, here's the kingdom, here's the way into the kingdom, the king is here, is he shows us what the culture of the kingdom will be like, what a gospel culture is and looks like. That's the Beatitudes. This is Matthew 5, and here's what he says about it. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And over this, you'll see the Beatitudes. It says this, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. This is what a gospel culture is. This is what it looks like. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you were to open up the entirety of the Bible and say, where is the most concise kind of summation of what a gospel culture is and looks like, I think you would be hard-pressed to find a better summation than that right there. This is gospel culture in action. This is gospel culture stated in a really concise way. That This is what it looks like for, for gospel doctrine to come down on a group of people and to produce something. 
That this is what it produces. This is what life with God looks like. So I wanna answer three questions this morning. First of all, what does it mean to be blessed? What does Jesus mean when he says, blessed are, are the poor in spirit, are the merciful? What does he mean by that word blessed? What is the kingdom of heaven? What does Jesus mean when he talks about the kingdom of heaven? And then lastly, we'll talk about a gospel culture, how each of these beatitudes contribute to making up a gospel culture. So question number one, what does Jesus mean by blessed? When he's using this word blessed, you see it in all, you know, all eight of these beatitudes, verses three through 10, every one of them start out with this sort of phrase of blessed are these sort of people. Blessed are those who. But blessed are. So the question is, what does he mean by blessed? If we're going to understand the Beatitudes, we've got to make sure we're not assuming that we know this word, but we actually do know it, that we've pressed into it and have done the hard work of figuring out what does he mean with this. Now, when you're thinking about that word blessed and trying to figure out what does it mean, sometimes the best way to do that is to lay its opposite beside it. So think about the opposite of blessed. The opposite of blessed might be the word cursed or woe is this person. So what Jesus says in Luke. So, so what is the idea of, of being cursed? What does that mean in the Bible? To be cursed means you have been cut off from God. To, to be cursed means you are, um, it, it is nothing but emptiness in you. To, to be cursed is utter ruin. This is what curse means in the Bible. It's God forsakenness, it's, it's emptiness, it's ruin. Those sort of words would describe that. Now, when we lay that opposite down beside blessed, we begin to see what, what this word means. When Jesus comes and says, blessed are those, it's a tone of encouragement. He's looking at us and he is saying, it's not God forsakenness, it's God witness. Like this is what it means to be blessed. God is with you in a sort of tangible, personal way. This is what blessing means. If curse means ruin, bless means renewed. That you're being renewed and you're being filled. If, if, if curse means to be absolutely poured out and empty, there, there's hollowness inside. To be blessed means to be full, to have richness and depth inside of you. See, when, when, when Jesus is saying blessed are those, when he's using that word blessed, he's looking at us and he's saying fortunate are those. These people have an enduring sort of happiness that can't be shaken or ripped out of them. This is what it means to, to be blessed. It means that you are full of hope, not despair. That, you, that that's fullness of life, richness of life, depth of life. This is what he means when he says blessed. Now, I always like to point this out when we're to places like this in the Bible. The Bible is not about asking and answering questions that we don't care about. The Bible is about asking and answering questions that we care a lot about. And we care a lot about this word blessed. You care about it. I care about it. Every human being cares about the word blessed. We're all chasing the word blessed. We all want the word blessed. Our lives are shaped by that word blessed. Now listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones describe this. He wrote a book on the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to how he uh, describes this idea of we're all chasing this thing. He, he says it this way. This will be on the screen for you. He says, happiness is the great question confronting mankind. Happiness or blessing, being fortunate, be, being in, in that category where the fullness of God has landed on you, where you've got this enduring happiness. He's saying happiness is the great question confronting mankind. This word blessing. The whole world is longing for happiness. Okay, now it's, it's important that we know that. The whole world is long. This is the question we all brought in here this morning. How can we be happy? How, how can we be in the category of blessed? How can we be that? The whole world is longing for happiness. And it's tragic to observe the ways in which people are seeking it. The vast majority, alas, are doing so in a way that is bound to produce misery. Anything which, by evading the difficulties, merely makes people happy for the time being, is ultimately going to add to their misery and problems. This is where the utter deceitfulness of sin comes in. Now listen to this. He says, here's the utter deceitfulness of sin. It is always offering happiness... And it always leads to unhappiness and to final misery and wretchedness. See, that is the confusing thing about sin. It presents this incredibly satisfying, you know, veneer. But when you bite into it and you get a hold of it, it leads to more misery. 
He goes on to say, the Sermon on the Mount says, however, that if you really want to be happy, here is the way. Now let's just consider what he's saying here. He's saying that we all care about this word blessing. We all care about that happiness, this enduring joy. We are all profoundly shaped by that word. Now, you may not know this about you, but when you wake up on a Monday morning and you go to live your Monday, you are profoundly shaped by a desire for happiness. You are, I am. We, we might not think about our Monday morning being determined by that desire for happiness, but we're all shaped by it. What is going to give me an enduring joy? What is that? We're all shaped by that today. You walked in being shaped by that. We live today shaped by that. We'll live this week shaped by that. This is what he's saying. We're all confronted with the question, what are we depending on to make us enduringly happy? Now that question right there determines everything about your life. You, you are profoundly shaped by the answer to that question. What am I going to depend on in this world to make me enduringly happy? What am I going to depend on to give me the joy that I want? What am I going to depend on to scratch that deep ache inside of me? Your life is shaped by that question. My life is absolutely shaped by that question. And here's the important thing for us to kind of get a hold of. is Jesus is not the only one making disciples here. Our culture is also about making disciples. And the way Jesus answers the question, what can you depend on for enduring happiness? And the way the world answers the question, what can you depend on for enduring happiness? Those two answers are much different. Jesus' answer, the world's answer, look completely opposite of one another. Jesus' answer is, if you want this sort of blessing, if you want blessing to break out over your head, here is the way. It's called the Beatitudes. Walk down that road. Trust me for that. Walk that. And that's where blessing and happiness will break out in your life. The world's answer is much different. I, I love how Ray Ortland, he gives the world's answer to this question as the negative to the Beatitudes. So if poor in spirit is the way that Jesus says blessing will break out over your head and during happiness will, will come to you, if that's what Jesus says, the world says the exact opposite. It's the negative of that. Listen to how Ray Ortland summarizes kind of the, the negatives of each of the eight Beatitudes. He says it this way. Here's the world's answer to the question, what can you depend on for enduring happiness to, to secure blessing for your life? Here's its answer. Blessed are the entitled, for they will get their way. Blessed are the carefree, for they are comfortable. Not, not those who mourn, but the carefree. Blessed are the pushy, not the meek, but the pushy, for they will win. Blessed are the self-righteous, not those who are hungering and thirsty for righteousness, but for the self-righteous, for they need nothing. Blessed are the vengeful, for they will be feared. Blessed are those who don't get caught, for they look good. Blessed are the argumentative, not the peacemakers, but the argumentative, for they get in the last word. They win the arguments. Blessed are the winners, for they get their way. See, that's the world's way for blessing. Jesus' way looks the exact opposite of that. So here's the first question we need to just deal with personally. What way are we depending on to secure happiness in our life? The way of Jesus or the way of the world? Who, who, who are we following as a disciple? Jesus or the world? They're both making disciples. But I've just got this little hunch that for a lot of us, we really believe when push comes to shove that the way we're gonna be okay, the way we're gonna make it in this world is to go with the world, not with Jesus. And Jesus is saying, listen, if you follow, if you walk down the road of these beatitudes, poor in spirit, merciful, the meek, those who mourn, the peacemakers, if you walk down the road of the beatitudes, you can't miss the blessing of God. That's what he's saying to us. You can't miss it. You cannot miss joy and enduring happiness if you'll walk down this road. Blessing is sure to break over your head if you'll just walk down this road. This is what he means by the word blessed. Second question, what did Jesus mean by the kingdom of God? When he talks about the kingdom of God, blessed are the, pure in, in spirit, or the poor in spirit, for theirs will be the kingdom of God. They'll receive the kingdom of God, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. What does he mean by that? Now, when you think about that, that word kingdom of God or that phrase is really walking us into the grand theme of the Bible. 
It is what the Bible is all about. God coming in, a, in its kingship in Jesus to make a new kingdom, a new community. This is what the Bible from front to finish is about. And, and in one way, if you want to look at the Old Testament, one way to view the Old Testament is as one big promise about the future kingdom of God. This is one way to think about the Old Testament. And then when you read the Old Testament, you get all of these particular promises that show us what the kingdom of God will one day be like. And I just want to read a few of these to you. Let me read three of these places where, where it shows us this is what the kingdom of God will one day be like. Here's Isaiah 65, verse 25. <clears throat> it says this. It should be on the screen for you. Talking about this future kingdom of God, what the kingdom of God will one day be. It says this, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. The holy mountain is a way of God saying the entirety of my kingdom. They shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain, says the Lord. That is a picture of what's coming for every son and daughter of God. Can you imagine a place that safe? That safe. See, there's, there's going to be no locks on any doors in the kingdom of God. There won't, be a, there won't be a need for locks on doors in the kingdom of God. It's going to be a place that safe where, where a wolf and a sheep can snuggle and that go well for everyone. It's going to be a place that's that safe. Now, now, just think about this. This is good news for all of us. Have you ever just turned on the news and you're watching the news and you're just thinking this? Man, it just feels hopeless. This world just feels, it feels like there is nothing that is ever going to change. If you watch the news and read the paper, if you're like me, you'll have this thought periodically. This seems so daunting and there's just so much brokenness in the world. It doesn't really even feel like you can do anything to make a dent in that brokenness. You ever felt that way? And if we're not careful, here's the next thought that we'll think. This is never going to change. And what Jesus is announcing in his new kingdom is that that is not true. These, these Old Testament voices are these prophetic voices that are telling us this. There will be a day when things change. And in that day, everything will change. It will be that safe in that day. Let's go on. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. The prophet says this in Zephaniah 3. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors. Now, I love how one guy, he just says, isn't that a vague way to say that? I mean, what's underneath God saying, listen, I will deal with them. I have no idea what that means, but I trust God's going to do us fair there, don't you? I will deal with all of your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast. Listen to this. And I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together. For I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. You know, following Jesus is hard, isn't it? There are losses that come along with following Jesus. There's things that you can't do that you would otherwise do if you didn't love Jesus. There's places you would go that you, you don't go because you love Jesus. There's ways that you could spend that you don't spend because you love Jesus. It's just costly. Obedience to Jesus is hard. And here's what he is saying here. There will be a day where I make up for all of your losses. I know it's hard, he's saying. And there will be a day where I make up for all of it. There will not be one of God's sons and daughters that at the end of the day, when all accounts are settled, feels this. I got ripped off by God. None of us are gonna think that way. We're all gonna think this way. God did me right. Man, he was kind. He restored a hundredfold what I lost along the way. But, but then I love this phrase. You see this? In verse 19, I will change their shame into praise. He, he, now listen to what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I will tack on praise to their shame. That's not what he says. He doesn't say, I'll just add on a little praise to their shame. Add on a little glory and renown to their, it's not that. He says, I'll take your shame. You know those things that you're the most embarrassed about about your life? You know those things that like, when people just bring that up, you start to sweat. Those things that just bring so much shame to you. 
I will take those things, those things that you're so embarrassed about, that when you think about just all sorts of guilt floods into your soul, I will take those things and I will turn those things of shame into praise for you. Now just hear that. Not I'm gonna add a little praise onto it, but I will take those things that bring disgust to your soul when you think about it, I will make those into praise and glory and renown. That's the kingdom of God that's on the horizon for us. Let me give you one more. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 12, 13 and 14 says this. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, the oil, and over the young of the flock and of the herd. Their life shall be, a listen to this, their life shall be a watered garden and they shall languish no more. No more languishing in the kingdom of God. No more despair in the kingdom of God. No more Monday mornings in the kingdom of God. Can we all get a little bit excited about that? There's no more of those days you wake up with just dread about how this day's gonna go. No more of that. He says, your life is gonna be not that, it's gonna be like a watered garden where everything is flourishing. That's the kingdom of God. It's a, the kingdom of God is a place for people like you and I can flourish. That's the kingdom of God. He goes on, verse 13. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. Not just add joy onto their mourning, but I will take everything that you mourn about now and I'm going to turn all of those things into joy for you later. That's what the kingdom of God will be like. And then he goes on and says this, I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priest with abundance. And I love this last phrase. And my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. The kingdom of God is going to be a place where for all eternity, your heart is absolutely full and satisfied. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? That is the coming kingdom of God. And listen, this is not just optimism. This is not a Christian thinking, oh, well, what if that could come true one day? This is realism. Jesus came 2,000 years ago. He lived, he died, and he rose again, right? He died to purchase it. He rose again to prove that this is legit, that this is actually going to happen. The resurrection is a foretaste of the kingdom of God, and he will one day come back to finalize this thing right here. This is coming for all of us. When God is talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, this is what he's talking about. This place where human beings will flourish for all eternity, where, where it's all the best of this world without the brokenness. This is coming for every son and daughter of God. Now this presents us with the question that we'll kind of end on this morning. If that is what's coming one day, if Jesus is one day gonna come and finalize that, but where does that leave us now? Where can a watching world look to see a foretaste of the kingdom of God? Where can a watching world go to see like what this future kingdom of God will one day be like? Answer, they can go and they can look around in, they can see, they can rub shoulders with a healthy local church. This is what a, this is what a local church is meant to represent and to image forth to the world. See, the world has a right to look at a local church and ask the question, is that, is that a foretaste? Is that like, is, is that a picture of what the kingdom of God will one day be like? They've got a right to, answer, to ask that question. See, this is what the church is meant to be. We've used this image of a model home. This is what a church is meant to be in the design of God. It's meant to be this model home where people can come in, look around, kind of get a tangible taste of what the neighborhood will one day look like that God is building. This is a church. So where do we see what this gospel culture should look like? Where do we see what this model home should look like? Answers in the Beatitudes. What does a gospel culture look like? The, Be the Beatitudes. These eight Beatitudes here in Matthew 5 show us a glimpse of this. So I want to end by just doing a quick flyover over all eight of these Beatitudes. We're going to go quickly through them. We're not going to be able to linger long here. But I want to just give a, a quick kind of view of what, what, what is a gospel culture? And, and how do these beatitudes show us this gospel culture? And as we do this, we're going to finish with communion today. And so as we're, as we're running through and thinking about these beatitudes, 
I want to encourage you, this would be a great time for you just to settle in and for you to examine your own heart here this morning. Because if we ever want to be a gospel culture collectively as a church family, do you know where that starts? It starts with you and I having the willingness to face ourselves and to ask ourselves, are we willing to walk down this road? Are we willing to be a gospel culture personally? Are we willing to allow the Spirit of God to deal with us in such a way where he's creating this in us so that now when, when you and I and us are gathered, we become this? So verse 3, what does the gospel culture look like? It starts in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Poor in spirit. Here's the first little component of a gospel culture. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? And, you know, when, when you're thinking about this first beatitude, I think it's important to see that it is the key to the rest of the beatitudes. If you miss this one, it's impossible to get the other ones. If you get this one, all the other ones seem to kind of fall in line. That This beatitude is the key to the Christian life. So, so what does it mean to be poor in spirit? To be poor in spirit is living with the acute awareness, with the acute awareness that we have nothing and God has everything. It's living with that, knowing that, that we are weak and needy people. It's the posture of our heart that looks at God and says, we actually need you. Without you, nothing that we want to see happen in life can happen. It's that posture. See, poor in spirit, the opposite of being poor in spirit is to be prideful. That's the opposite. Being prideful is to be rich in spirit. It's to think we have everything we need. But to be poor in spirit is to realize we have nothing that we need. That God has everything that we need and we have to go to God with empty hands to get that. See, this is the ironic thing in the kingdom of God. When you think you have something, you get absolutely nothing from God. But when you know you have nothing, here's the great news. You get everything from God. See, the grace of God has a tendency to always flow downhill. It's always fl flowing away from the proud and to the poor in spirit. It's, it's flowing away from those who think they have everything they need, and it's flowing to those who realize we have nothing that we need. The grace of God always flows downhill into those people. So ask yourself the question this morning. Are you weak and are you needy this morning? Do you know that about yourself? And if your answer is, yes, I know that. I mean, I came in this morning broken into a thousand pieces, so needy of God this morning. Here's the great news. God would look at you this morning and say, blessed are you. Man, fortunate are you. And for, the, for those who know they are needy, my grace is on the way. Hold on, grace is coming. Blessed are you. Do you feel the encouragement in this? God is looking at us in our need and saying, I'm coming for you. Grace is on the way. Filling up is on the way. You, you know you have nothing. I'm coming with everything to you. And isn't this ironic? If you are going to start a movement that, that your plan is to change the world, right? Who starts a movement like this? Um, who in the room is an idiot and knows it? Who, who in the room is, is, is just a fool and you know it? Who has nothing and you know you, who's weak and you know you're weak? Everybody that raises your, yep, I'll take you. Who starts a movement like that? Nobody starts like that other than God. And for all who feel that this morning, I am weak, I am needy, I am broken. God is announcing good news for you. And fortunate are you. You're gonna get everything from me. This is what it means to be poor in spirit. Verse four, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is a direct outflow of being poor in spirit. When you're poor in spirit, then you start to, to get a sense of all that you have to mourn about in your life. And when it's talking about mourning, you know, I, I don't think it's, I, I think it's a both and, but I want to emphasize one part of mourning today. Not so much the looking at a broken world out there. I think primarily the morning that he's talking about here is looking internally and seeing what you are and what you're not and mourning that. So can I ask you a question this morning? When is the last time you have faced yourself, have looked at your own heart, what you are and what you're not, and have just mourned over that? 
like mourned over your own personal sin. All the brokenness that's not just out there, but that's in here in you. When is the last time you've looked at yourself and your own brokenness of sin has caused a tear to come to your eye where you have mourned and grieved that? So, you know, I think a real missing mark in many churches today, I and mean, it's one that I'm praying for continually for us, is not just to being able to point a finger out there and to mourn all the brokenness that is out there, and there's a lot of it, but not just an ability to do that, but to point a finger at your own heart, our own hearts, and to mourn that. Can you do that? And for all those this morning where you're, where you're saying, where you've got just this acute sense of, I am broken. I mean, when I look at me, when I face me, it grieves me. My heart mourns over that. God is looking at you this morning and saying, man, blessed are you. Fortunate are you this morning. And if you see that this morning, comfort is on the way. Blessing is going to break out over your head. Blessed are you. Blessed are those who mourn, for they, sh they shall be comforted. Verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now this word meek, is a, it's a notoriously hard word to kind of define and describe. But here's the best way I think I could describe it. To be meek means this. It's an incredibly strong person that has let go of his strength and clothed himself or herself with gentleness and kindness and humility. This is what it means to be meek. In incredible strength still in their spine, but have let go of their strength and they have grabbed onto gentleness and kindness. That, that's meekness. Now, everything in our world screams against meekness, doesn't it? We live in a world that says this, don't let them talk to you that way. No, you put your foot down. Don't let them get by with that. You cannot be a doormat for that person. We live in a world that disciples us to think like that. That blessing flows from, you put your foot down and you give them a piece of your mind. The blessing is found there. And, and Jesus is saying, no, nope, that's not where blessing's found. And that's not where the fortunate, that's not where, that's not where the grace of God is going to be most active. That's not it. That's not where enduring happiness is going to be found. It's going to be found in letting go of, of your rights and, and getting on gentleness and, and, and kindness. And if you just want a tangible picture of that, it's in Jesus, isn't it? That Jesus is the most powerful person in the universe. I mean, in just one breath, he could have rained down fire on Pilate and everyone that's killing him. In one breath, he could have done that. But rather than doing that, when he's reviled, he doesn't revile in return. When he's mocked, he doesn't mock in return. He lets go of his strength and he, and he takes up kindness and gentleness. Aren't we grateful for that? This is what, this is what it means to be meek. And Jesus is saying this, all of you who are letting go of your rights, gosh, that hurts to do that. All of you who are dying to yourself, all of you who are willing to, to even be run over at times by other people, all of you who are letting go of strength so that you can grab kindness and gentleness and humility, blessed are you. And the, the, the fortune of God is about to break out over your head. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is what a gospel culture looks like. It looks like a group of people who are desperate for more of God, who are desperate for that. Like when, I talk, when I'm talking desperate, I'm talking like this sort of desperate. I've been in a desert for like a week. I haven't had a sip of water and there's a bottle of water. I'm that desperate. Like I will kill a person to get some of that. It's that sort of desperation with God. Like, I need God like that. I want more of God like that. I want more of obedience like that. I need God to break through in my heart like that. It's that sort of desperation. I love how one pastor said it. He said, nonchalant worldliness will kill you. Now just say on that for a second. Nonchalant worldliness will kill you. Complacent Christianity will kill you. But hungering and thirsting for righteousness will satisfy you. Man, is there a hunger inside of you for more of God this morning? If, if not, that's the most serious problem you have in your life right now. That's the number one thing you need to be praying for. God, will you please give me massive desire for you? God, will you warm my heart with a want for you? 
If you don't have that, that's a great thing for you to be praying. But, but God is saying, if you have that this morning, if there is a deep desire, like you can't quench this for more of God, blessed are you and fortunate are you that the grace and the blessing of God is about to break out over your head. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You know, if, if I'm starting a movement, I'm just not sure that's the way I would start it. I'm not sure I would start it by saying, hey, give me all of those who are willing to give people a lot of mercy. I think I would start it like this. Hey, who in here will kill people to get the job done? Who are those people? Let's do this. But that's not what, that's not what Jesus does, is it? He says, no, no, it's not, it's not the radical. It's not the crazy. It's, I want the merciful. I, I want those who are willing to look a person in the eye who has deeply hurt them and say, I'll give mercy to you. I mean, I've got grace for you. I've got forgiveness and hope for you right now in this moment. I want people like that, he's saying. That's who he's starting this thing with. And listen, if you're here saying, man, I want that. I just have such a hard time doing that. Here's the great news. Jesus actually died to create this in you and I. He actually, it's a big enough deal that he died to create it. This is what a gospel culture looks like. It looks like a people who have received this sort of mercy from God. So much more grace than we ever deserve from God. So, so much more than, than we ever could have conceived God of ever giving us. We've received that sort of mercy and now we begin to extend it to other people who don't deserve it, who've actually have earned something different. This is what it means to be merciful. And do you know how powerful mercy is? I want you to think about something for a moment. I want you to think and just imagine you absolutely wrecking your life. You have fallen in a way into sin that is just irreparable. I mean, you have just destroyed things. Now think about in that moment of you wrecking your life, who would you turn to right now if that happened? Who would be the first person you would call? I, I don't know who their name is, but I'll know, I know this about them. That that person that you just thought of is a person that's full of grace and mercy. Now think about that. The church is meant to be a culture where when people fall apart, I mean, they wreck their life. The first people they think to call are us that we have that sort of grace and mercy on display, ready to bestow on people. That sort of grace and mercy. That's how powerful it is. And Jesus died to create that. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Verse eight. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So you see here that the key is not like what you are outwardly, but what you are inwardly. Like the Pharisees looked so good outwardly, didn't they? They had everything together in the New Testament. They were the people who were walking the straight and narrow, but Jesus reserved the harshest words for them. Do you know why? Because they had everything together on the outside and nothing on the inside. And you know what that's called? Hypocrisy. That's not what God is after. He's after purity in heart. That means that, that when we think about our life, we think about the world, there is Jesus over here and there is everything else down underneath that. There's no competitors. He's got this supreme place in our hearts. This is what it means to be pure in heart. See, the big question in the Bible when God looks at us, when God's thinking about us, is not what we seem to be, but what we really are. That's the question. What are we really? Pull back the layers and what is down underneath the facade that we present to other people? And God is saying this, for the pure in heart, for those who are willing to face themselves and not run from themselves, those who are willing to allow the spirit of God to deal with the real them inside there, blessed are them. Blessed are them. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Verse nine, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. We live in a world that is trigger happy and angry, don't we? It is tension filled. Our world needs more peacemakers. And we talked about this several months ago, where you can either be one of three things in terms of peacemaking. You can be a peace faker. That's the passive aggressive. People have hurt me. So I'm not gonna run to them and make them pay. I'm gonna run away from them and make them pay. Every time I think about them, I'm gonna club them in my heart. That's peace faking. Or we can be peace breakers. Peace breakers is I'm gonna run to them and make them pay. It's the aggressive approach, not passive aggressive. That's peace faking. Peace breaking is the aggressive. They're gonna pay and they're gonna pay right now. I'm gonna show up at their doorstep and payment is happening. 
That's peace-breaking. But in contrast to both peace-faking and peacemaking is peacemaking. This is the idea of we run to them, not to make them pay, but to love them, to give grace and mercy to them. That's peacemaking. And Jesus died to create peacemakers, people who don't have to always have their way, people who don't always have to win the argument, people who can willingly lose so that other people can win. Peacemakers. And listen, you know, if you've ever been in the throes of that, and that's all of us, you know that is extremely difficult, isn't it? To let go of your grievances, to let go of your grudges, to actually be a person who will forgive another human being. That is hard, hard obedience. And Jesus is saying, if that's you right now, if you're struggling through that, if you're pursuing that, if you're walking in that, blessed are you. And blessed are the people. He bestows the highest name upon them. They shall be called sons and daughters of God. And lastly, verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, isn't it ironic? See, I I would expect when you get to the end of this, that this would not be the way it's summarized. See, when, when I think about like our world is angry, it's tense, it's trigger happy, it's prideful, it's all of those things. And when these beatitudes show up into our world, I would be thinking this, The world is about to roll out the red carpet and we're about to have a parade for this sort of people, this sort of a gospel culture. But you know the strange thing is, that's not what happens, is it? Rather than the world rolling out the red carpet, Jesus says, here's what you need to expect. Persecution, hardship, trials. That's what it's gonna mean to follow me in this world. Not not the red carpet, but these things. Difficulty, persecution. That's what's gonna follow you. I I think he's, he's trying to communicate this to us obedience to me is always going to be hard in this fallen and broken world. You're gonna feel like you're losing so often. You're gonna feel like everything is being stripped from you so often. And Jesus in the middle of us feeling that is coming to us and saying, if you feel that right now, if obedience is costing you something, if you feel like you're being stripped of everything, if you feel like you're losing right now, blessed are you. Man, great is your reward blessing is going to break out over your head in ways that you can't even conceive right now. Stay the course. Keep walking down that road. Keep trusting me. Blessed are you. This is a gospel culture. Now, here's how I want to end this morning. I want you to bow your head. And I want us just to have some time this morning to think about these things in our lives. Jesus says, blessed are are those, fortunate, full. There is a richness to their life. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who know they have nothing, in need of everything. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers, those who are persecuted. And just ask yourself right now, is that the way that you would see the blessed life, that you would see fullness of life, depth of life, richness, Are you trusting Jesus' way or is it the world's way for blessing and richness of life? And in every one of those little instances where we're seeing, I'm trusting in the world's way to secure happiness, to secure the joy that I so deeply long for, Jesus announces in Matthew 4, 17, here's what you do. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So so our our role this morning is to turn from our sin everywhere we're trusting in the world's way. We turn from that, and we're hurling our life upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, where we find two things right there for us. We find saving grace and forgiving grace that will cover our sin, cleanse us from sin, 
but we also find transforming grace that will make us more and more like this sort of a culture, like these sort of a people. And so this is a moment where we get to do that, where we get to have a moment before God where we turn from sin everywhere we're trusting in the world's way and we turn back to Jesus. And we're going to end this morning by doing communion. And so communion is for those who are in right relationship with Jesus. That means that we are Christians. If there's never been a moment where you have stepped across the line of faith, there's never been that moment for you, Here's step one this morning. Before you take communion, here's the number one thing that needs to happen. You need to take Christ. This could be your morning for that. It is, it is where God says, blessed are you. And if, if you want to walk into that sort of blessing, it starts right there with you trusting Jesus, where you forsaking your sin, you hurling your life upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you coming with the empty hands of faith this morning saying to God, I have nothing and I need everything that's found in Jesus. And in that moment, God brings you into his kingdom, into his new community, into his new family. And for those of us who are in the family, a right relationship with God means that we are constantly repenting. It's not, repentance is not just the way we enter the, the kingdom of God. It's the way we make progress. It's the way we grow up in the kingdom. So we want to give you a moment to just allow the Spirit of God to press any of the things that would be helpful and to wipe away the things that wouldn't be. And if you've got kids in the room, um, I, I think communion is a great time to bring them up, to let them see what's happening. If they're Christians, they're more than welcome to, to join in with us. If they're not yet Christians, then it's a great time for them to see this. I think it would spur a great conversation on the way home today. And if you've been here for a while, you know how we do this. We've got two tables up front, one in the back. You'll come dip the bread in the juice and do all that right there at the table. So Father, we love you. God, we are thankful for Jesus. We're thankful for his life, his death, and his resurrection and all that that means for us right now. God, it means that you love us. It means that, that right now, if we're in Christ, that we are under your smile, not your frown. God, and I, I thank you for what it means for us in terms of growing up in you. It means that all of these beatitudes now become possible. That you've given us a new heart that's capable of walking in these things. And so, Father, I pray that you would help each of us have the courage right now to face ourselves, to turn from our sin, and to run after you. And it's in your good name that we ask that. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.